Ben, thank you, uh, those of you who served at Trunk or Treat. Well, that was so fun. And um, it was the first time I was there, not simply as a pastor, not simply as a parent, but as a grandfather. It was so fun. And you guys are so creative. I, I'm not sure what cell group it was, but I think they got confused because they thought it was a Christmas event. And, uh, but they were really uh, hamming it up, and thank you so much. It was a joy to be with all of you. Hey, um, we're going through the book of Hebrews, and the author is writing to a group of people that um, are struggling spiritually, and throughout the book, he's trying to make the point that Jesus is greater. He's the greater answer, and every paragraph, every section, he's trying to paint a picture of who Jesus is so that we may grasp, not only in our head, but in our hearts, in what way Jesus is greater. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4? Our whole passage is chapter 4, verses 14 through chapter 5, verse 10, but we're going to focus on chapter 4, verse 14 to chapter 5, verse 4. And in it, we're going to... Um, discover an aspect of Jesus that makes him greater, a, a greater answer, a greater solution for our hearts. But what we're going to discover is this. Jesus is greater not because he's great, at least in this section, but Jesus is greater because he's not. I hope that makes sense. Jesus is greater because he's not. Okay, let me begin reading. And I'm going to point out two phrases, right, as we read. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been, and here's the phrase, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And that's the second phrase I wanted to kind of park on, beset with weakness. Verse 3, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Two phrases, beset with weakness and tempted as we are. And we're going to look at uh, those in reverse. And for, so we're going to first look at uh, Jesus, who was beset with weakness, chapter 5, verses 1 through for it begins, for every high priest, every high priest, this is a superset. He's thought, uh, the author is not talking simply about Jesus, the Son of God, whom we will uh, narrow it down to, but all priests, every high priest. Um, and we're going to discover three things about every high priest. The, the first thing that, that we're going to be uh, told of, of every high priest is that high priest is chosen among men. Every high priest is chosen among men and is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So one of the first things that we discover about 
every high priest, which includes Jesus, is that that person was chosen among people. Priest, by definition, uh, at least far as it is contained in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, priests are those who uh, represent the people to God. So they have to be chosen from among the people as they relate to God. They are representatives, um, uh, meaning they have to be a part of uh, humanity. Um, and, you know, it's important for us to understand that those who can represent humanity best uh, in, uh, in front of God is, are those who uh, are part of humanity. And, and how this is important is the second thing that we learn about um, the high priest, that that person or priest in verse 2 is himself beset with weakness. He is beset with weakness. The term beset uh, has a prefix uh, to mean uh, around and the root to lie. It is translated as encompassed, surrounded, or clothed with. And the word weakness is uh, translated also as diseased, infirmed, sick, or weak. So what we learn about the high priest is this, that high priest has been uh, chosen from among people. And what this means is that priest is um, beset, surrounded by, characterized by human weaknesses. And that's one of the first things that the author of Hebrews wants us to know, that the high priest, like you and I, are uh, those who are weak, broken, injured, sick, like you and I. Uh, you know, um, over the, the course of however many um, years I've been a pastor, I've had to periodically uh, counsel people, deal with people who've had um, challenges with addiction. And so I've learned a little bit, not a lot, a little bit about facilities that help people with addiction. Um, I've, I've run into good ones and not so good ones. Um, I, I remember one place where um, I, I discovered and I learned a little bit about, was going to recommend people until I found out that uh, although the, the, the operators are well-intended, that the participant, those who live in that facility, uh, who come uh, with, with baggage of drugs and alcohol, um, and when people go there, it would oftentimes get worse because they're supplying each other with things that they ought not to be partaking with. So it, instead of it being a place of recovery, it became a, a place where it deepens their addiction, unhelpful. Not too long ago, I heard about another place where a family member had to... Um, had to engage in, and, and um, when, when this family was telling me about it, I realized this is really good. And what they told me was that they are extremely, extremely strict. I mean, like over-the-top strict. But uh, one of the unique things that I discovered about this particular facility is that every person who works at that facility was a former addict of some sort. Even the, the therapists were. And so because they were former addicts, former um, 
um, you know, those who were with alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, with their choice of addiction, because they were former addicts, they understood those who are coming into the facility. They understood what it means, the temptations that they face. So they, they were much, much harder and more strict, but at the same time, they were much more compassionate and merciful and gracious to them. When the author of Hebrews talks about the high priest, he lets us know that the high priest is not someone who is above and beyond, but from among. He, he's not, um, she's not someone who stands above the rest of us, but someone who is from among us. Not because she is healthier, but she is among one of the patients. The third thing that we discover about the high priestess is not only is that person chosen among men, beset with weakness, but is obligated to offer sacrifices. Is obligated to offer sacrifices. That high priest is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Now, this is important. Now, we believe that the, the job of the high priest is to give um, an offering or make sacrifices as a mediator, someone who plays the intermediary role between sinful man and a holy God. So you think that their job is to simply um, take the sacrificial offering and, and give it to God on behalf of these sinful people, which is partially true. That's probably one of their primary jobs. But let me describe to you, let me give you a little bit of Old Testament history lessons, all right? And this is a little bit of upper division uh, Old Testament. In Leviticus, um, we're given an instruction on how the, the, the religious system is supposed to work. And so it gives detailed instruction on, on the kind of sins that they, people commit and, and the way that they are to atone for it or, or ask for forgiveness. So, for example, in Leviticus chapter 4, we are told that if you commit uh, unintentional sin, you are to give a sin offering. And so, and depending on your income level, etc., sometimes you give a dove, sometimes you give a grain, sometimes you give a bull, etc. Now, the people who uh, administer that, so a person isn't supposed to think, oh, I sinned, and so I'm going to uh, uh, slay my little goat here at home, but rather they're supposed to take the goat, go to Jerusalem, go to the temple, and give it to a class of people called the priests. And the priests were supposed to take that goat or the, the dove or whatever, and they were to offer it as a sacrifice so that the people could be forgiven. Okay? So the book of Leviticus is filled with instructions like that in chapter 4, it deals with sin offering. But it's interesting. In chapter 4, verse 3, it says this, if, so if the average person sins, this is what they do, but if it is the anointed priest who sins, but what happens if that person who's the mediator sins. And it's interesting, listen to this. If the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, when an average citizen sins, he brings guilt upon himself, but when the priest sins, he brings guilt on the people. He not only sins for himself, but because he's playing the role of a representative or a mediator, he brings guilt on the whole people. That the sacrifices that he must make now uh, for forgiveness has to be greater. A few chapters later in Leviticus chapter 8, we are told of the ordination service of the very first priest in this particular um, era, and it is that of Aaron, if you remember Moses' brother. 
And um, in, in chapter 8, it goes to elaborate details about uh, how to uh, consecrate Aaron as, and his sons as the first set of priests. And it's interesting in that one of the offerings they give is an ordination offering. So if, if you're you know, somewhat familiar with the church, when a pastor becomes ordained and becomes a reverend, they're ordained, set apart, consecrated, installed for a lifetime. And in this particular era, Aaron and his sons were, um, were consecrated, and they were giving an ordination offering. And it took seven days. And for seven days, he said, no, no, you must do this and that. Otherwise, it literally said, oh, you will die, Aaron. Take this ordination seriously, consecration seriously. And so they went through all of that. They're installed as priests. And so we think, okay, Aaron now is qualified to serve as a mediator, the in-between sinful man and a holy God. They are now qualified. Now, the next chapter, Leviticus chapter 9, now you're ready to begin offering sin offerings to uh, bring forgiveness for people. And in chapter 9, verse 7, listen, Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people. And bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So the first thing that Aaron does, the first set of offering that he gives uh, after he's been consecrated is not to give an offering for the sins of the people, but give an offering for his own sins. And I think God wanted to make clear, and the author of Hebrews is making clear that the that the priest is not the priest because he was more holy. And in fact, the priest is sinful just like you and I. And he must give an account for his own sins first before anything else. How does this change our view of the high priest? And, you know, by the way, um, our modern... Um, day of, of reverend or pastors, it's not the equivalent of a high priest, by the way. And in fact, uh, God says that, that we are a kingdom of priests, and so all of us Christians have to, in some ways, play that priestly role. Um, but, so let's say we're talking about church leaders, whether it be pastors, elders, deacons, um, you know, directors, or let's say you teach children's, children where you're playing a certain role. How does this change our view of that? In some ways, we believe that people should be church leaders or spiritual leaders because uh, they, are, they live exemplary lives. That whether in, as 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, as Paul, the older pastor, writes to the younger pastor, Timothy, that let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, saying lead in an exemplary way, live your life in such a way that you're, the, young, the other people can see your life and say, hey, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to set that as a model for the kind of life I want to live. But 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, should be read in, in light of Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, who said that a leader is beset with weakness. A leader is beset 
with weakness, filled with weaknesses, and of his first duty is to repent. So, Isaiah, when confronted with the holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6, said this, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When you saw the holiness of God, this spiritual prophet says, Woe is me, I am unclean, not they are unclean. You know, there are things that disqualify men and women from spiritual leadership, but what qualifies someone for service, it's not their superior living, but listen carefully, but their superior repentance. It's not that they live better lives, but they realize that they are not. And so they're repenting. And when, when they do that, what happens is that this allows the leader, as according to verse 2, chapter 5, allows them to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. And perhaps this is the marker that we ought to look for. Perhaps this is the marker that we ought to strive for as spiritual leaders. Uh, is she arrogant, judgmental, quick to condemn, or is she gentle with those who are rebellious and sinful? You know, um, one, of my, uh, one of our pastor friends, Dave, Pastor Dave Newman, who's our church planting uh, adjunct pastor, some of you know him, and he's been here on stage, and uh, et cetera. Um, he's, an, he's an interesting, you know, character. He, um, he's the pastor at um, uh, Neighborhood Life Church, and um, he's not only an extreme extrovert, but he has a deep heart for a group of people, and the group of people that he really has a heart for are the homeless. In fact, he told us a, um, me a story about how he uh, was visiting the homeless one day in his city, and he uh, ran in, across uh, an individual man. How are you doing? And the man said, well, today's my birthday. Well, and as Dave would do it, you know, he just in his extrovertedness, and um, he's extremely musically gifted, and he, he just started singing happy birthday to this homeless man he just kind of met. And as he was singing happy birthday to this newly met former stranger, the homeless man began to cry. And he said afterwards, no one sang me happy birthday for years. If you talk to Dave, um, he is both extraordinarily compassionate toward the homeless, but at the same time, extraordinarily hard on the homeless. Um, he will not help those who will not help themselves. Who refuse to get help, he does not think, no, nope, we're not going to deal with it. He, by the way, he's worked many a years at the Los Angeles County uh, Rescue Mission, so he knows and if you talk to him even further than he shared with us here on our stage, the reason why he understands and he's compassionate as well as hard because um, he himself, his brother and his mom were homeless. He is 
He knows what it's like to be weak and without resource. And so he is able to be compassionate and merciful, but at the same time hard when necessary. When we're talking about high priest here, one of the things that, the thing that we learn is that uh, by definition, the high priest is one who is from among us, beset with weakness, and has to repent first and foremost. We go to now chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. If uh, we're told that the high priests are those who are beset with weakness, we are now in verse 14, is uh, given an instruction of the great high priest. Okay, so not every high priest, but now the great high priest. And now the great high priest is one who has been passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So now this is a subset, and this is a description of Jesus, the only great high priest. And the thing that we uh, are uh, are told about him, and if I can just say it in a broad sense, the, the phrase that I pick out is, he is tempted as we are. Three things about the great high priest. First, the great high priest has passed through the heavens. Jesus was um, God who laid aside his godness in order to become man. And when all is said and done, uh, after his humiliating uh, suffering and death on the cross and after his resurrection, he ascended back into the right hand of God. First thing that we learn. The second thing we learn about the great high priest priest is this, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It's a double negative, so it's really a little bit confusing when we first read it, but the, uh, the translator tried to keep it uh, as faithful to the original Greek, so that's, they used a double negative, so, they, so, um, so the, in English it's a double negative, but uh, if you just get rid of the double negative, what we will learn is that the great high priest is one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Okay. Now, uh, let me point, uh, you know, uh, point at the word sympathize. And uh, I've said this uh, a few times whenever I, I talk about this passage. It's a combination of two words, soon, which is the prefix, with, and patheo, which is to feel with. To feel with. To suffer with. The NIV, the interpreters uh, of the NIV chose to use a different word to interpret uh, sympatheo. Sympatheo, you know, if you just think about it, it, it uh, sympathy, oh, okay, that's where we get sympathy, okay? But the, uh, the interpreters of NIV thought, you know, in, in, in Greek, really what that word meant to those original readers is not sympathy, but empathy. Not just feel bad for someone, but to feel the same thing as that person. So, for example, sympathy says this. Wow, it must be hard being a single mom. It must be so hard for you. Empathy says, I lost my husband 20 years ago. I had to raise my kids on my own. I know what you're going to go through. Sympathy says, uh, you were betrayed by your friends. That's tough. Maybe you should post on social media more. That seems to help some people. Empathy 
says, those that were closest to me denied that they even knew me during my moment of my greatest pain. Sympathy says, your dad has Alzheimer's? I have no idea what that feels like. My parents are still healthy as can be. Empathy says, my father suffered from dementia for decades. It was agonizing for our family. When the writer of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, he is saying to us that you have a great high priest who can understand your pain, our limitations, um, the hardness of life because he has lived them. And it is unfathomable to me to think that Jesus felt some of the very human weaknesses that you and I feel when we become hungry or thirsty, when um, at the end of a long day we're just exhausted, when uh, there are times when we feel uh, the pang of betrayal or when we feel marginalized or oppressed or mocked or humiliated. But he sympathizes, he empathizes with our weaknesses. There's a third thing about the great high priest. Not only has he passed through the heavens, not only can he sympathize with our weaknesses, but he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's what verse 15 says, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus not only uh, was beset with weaknesses, but he also experienced genuine human temptation in every respect, in every category of temptation, whether it be lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, our desire uh, to, to fall into immorality, our desire to gather uh, money or be rich, or our, our desire to, to make ourselves famous, in every category, perhaps not the exact sin or temptation, but in every category of temptation, he has uh, experienced that temptation, uh, temptation. And a lot of theologians would say that Jesus faced it even in greater depth because he did not succumb to any one of them, so the temptation was more full, yet without sin. And Second Corinthians 5.21 adds, for this for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And because all this is true, because we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, it says in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In the Old Testament times, God's, the presence of God dwelt in the temple, in the tabernacle, in, in, the, in, in the Holy of Holies. And there, there was an um, a, 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 a Ark of the Covenant there, which is the throne in Israel, they called it. The throne is a place where we often imagine judgment 
Condemnation would come down. But it says here, this throne is a throne of grace. And that Old Testament throne was one that were not open, accessible to people. In fact, the Holy of Holies, only the great high priest can go in there during the Day of Atonement. The average person like you and I could not even go. But here, every person is not only uh, welcomed but encouraged to come to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy, that we may receive grace. You know, when we have an intellectual question, we seek a counselor. When we are doing well and, and are wanting to know how we can draw near to Christ, we sometimes go to the pastor. Um, but it is during those times when we have open wounds. The people that we seek the most are not those who are doing well, but those who understand our pain and our weaknesses. You know, a, um, a bunch of years ago, as, as I've talked about before, I had my heart attack, and it was, I, I thought I was relatively healthy, uh, and it surprised me. Um, and afterwards, I mean, uh, I mean, I was told by the cardiologist at the hospital, no, you know, in certain terms, you need an open heart surgery. Um, you need a bypass surgery. Got my appointment with my cardiothoracic surgeon, and they said, okay, your heart's in such bad shape, they're going to have to... And I know a little bit about open heart surgery. My dad has a, had a big scar here from a triple bypass. Um, and I remember um, after my heart attack, waiting for uh, the, the surgery, that it, it was a, kind of a discouraging time for me. I, I tend to be a fairly optimistic, like not thinking, I'm just going to go, there's my goal, I, I'm just going to go there. doesn't matter how I feel, that type of a person. Emotions are, you know, useless, like, live long and prosper type of a person. <laughs> but during this particular time, and uh, as I would do, I, I would research heart attacks, prognosis, outcomes. One of the things I discovered is a lot of people go through depression, they have a change of career because they can't handle the rigors of whatever they used to do. And at this moment in time, um, you know, I was going through a lot of introspection, thinking, okay, you know, maybe, I, maybe I'm going to step down from being the pastor to um, do something else, go back to programming if I can pick it up, etc., where I don't have to you know, move around a lot, etc. During that time, um, you know, if I were to receive counsel, I, I, you know, you might think that what I would do is um, seek the counsel of perhaps the healthiest person that I know. In fact, I had a pastor friend not too far from here and not too much younger than me, and he's a, a church not that dissimilar to Living Hope, and um, he's probably the healthiest, like, pastor that I know. And we would get together, and he would tell me about his dieting. And um, I said, well, what do you do? You know, tell me, what do you do? And he said, well, I do this and this and this. I go, oh, my goodness, that's too much. Like, what is, like, the dumb version? Of, okay, don't drink soda and eat sweet potato. Okay, I can do that. <laughs> so I cut uh, sodas after that, you know. 
But, you know, um, he was posting about how he's going to run in the Boston Marathon. And I'm not sure when I'm going to go back to work the next day, you know. You would think that a person who is weak would seek the person who is strong for counsel. But at that moment in time, that's not whom I wanted to talk to. And I still remember this conversation. I put in a call to another one of my friends, and I was in the parking lot of a strip mall in Braille, because when he called me, I answered it. We talked for probably about half an hour. And I asked him, who's also a pastor, so what was it like for you? What was it like for you to have open-heart surgery? What was it like for you to try to recover? How are you doing now? When did you go back to work and, and did you feel like you could? How does it impact who you feel like you are? It is interesting that when I was at my weakest, I didn't seek the help of someone who was strong, but I sought the help of someone who had a scar. Because that's who I felt like can understand me and I can understand them. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a person by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. And she is um, a Christian speaker, author, painter. And what makes her unique is she's a, um, a quadriplegic. She lost the use of her limbs. And, and she talks very openly about how difficult it was for her, is for her. And she uh, wrote about uh, the scars of Jesus. And she says this, will Jesus bear his scars in heaven? Revelation 5, 6 describes the scene. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. I have an inkling. He will be the only one who will retain the painful reminders of his earthly journey. We, on the other hand, will bear no scars. All our tears will be wiped away. The scars of Jesus will, be, will not be painful for us to see, but will be an eternal reason to rejoice. I'm going to ask the band to come up, but my admonition to you is this. It's not during times when we are strong. It's not during times when we've received victories or blessings, but it's those other times when we are walking in the valleys, when we feel weak, where we can come to Jesus not because he's great, but he ministers to us and he's a superior priest to us because he's not great, because he's weak, because he understands your pain and our failures and our hurts. That's what makes Jesus greater. That's the Christ who, uh, who gave himself up for you and for me, that's the Christ who has scars to show for you and me. It is interesting. I'm going to ask the servers to come up at this time and the band to, to take their place. But um, communion is an interesting kind of a, a sacrament that the church is asked to, uh, to remember and to keep. Before he went up to the cross where he, his sides would be pierced, where his hands would be nailed, there would be a crown of thorns around his head. He will bleed. He got his uh, followers together in a, a dark, smelly 
upper room and he told them as he passed the bread, this piece of bread, I want it to be symbolic of something new for you from this moment on, thousands of years later, through all the churches. This is supposed to remind you of my flesh, my body, which will bear scars for you. And as he passed the cup and he says, from now on, as you gather together periodically, I want you to do this often. I want you to drink this cup, this wine, and I want you to remember this represents the, my blood which was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. It's a dark kind of reminder, but it is a reminder to us of the greatness of Jesus, that he has scars for you and me. So, as the band plays, this is our invitation. The servers will go through the aisles. If you are here and you're saying, well, I'm not a Christian. Am I supposed to do that? I would ask you to observe. If you're a Christian and you say, but, you know, there's some still I'm wrestling, things that I'm wrestling with, that's okay. He's asking you to come, not in your strength, not in your victories, but in your weakness, in honesty, in your waywardness. Come. Take, hold on to it, and we'll partake of it together. Like I said, it is an um, interesting thing that the Lord instituted the sacrament. As he passed a, a, weight, uh, a, a piece of bread and said, I want, every time you do this, I want you to remember my flesh, my body, which was broken for you. Let's partake together of the wafer.
And if you open the next foil, and as, as Jesus passed the cup and he said, I want you to, every time you do this and do it often together, I want you to remember the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. That's, that's to remind you and me that we are sinners constantly in need of forgiveness. Let's partake together. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have scars. And when we get to heaven, we long to see you. Touch your side, behold your hands, to see the scars. To remind us that we have a Christ who understood, who understands, who will always understand our pains. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.